When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. If we have 12 million jobs opening, 6 million people roughly looking for work, why shouldn't they be able to find a job? Ukrainians have, quite frankly, a lot more information than we do. This is their country, their territory. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. I'm sure Democrats would say they're shaming Republicans, but I think this is an issue that really motivates both Given some of the votes that we saw in the Senate, there's definitely the momentum and the will to pass something. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The Pentagon says it is not directing the war in Ukraine. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics with the latest on Russia's war and an important conversation ahead with Senator Mark Warner, Democrat from Virginia, chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee member of finance, banking, and rules, who was also instrumental in Boeing moving its headquarters to the Washington area. We'll get into all of this. And with two job openings for every job seeker in America right now, we look inside another strong jobs report and talk about the risks of inflation with Jared Bernstein of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. Later on, the prospect of Roe v. Wade being overturned could mobilize Democrats in the fall. But Bloomberg opinion columnist Juliana Goldman says they will need to organize in order to win. The Biden administration says it is not providing intelligence to Ukraine on the locations of Russian generals. And it did not direct, it says, Ukraine's attack on the Moskva, right? Russia's flagship in the Black Sea that Ukraine sank last month. A terribly embarrassing moment for Moscow. All this reported by The New York Times and NBC News. But no, not quite. According to here, Pentagon Press Secretary, retired Rear Admiral John Kirby. We do not provide intelligence on the location of senior military leaders on the battlefield or participate in the targeting decisions of the Ukrainian military. Ukrainians have, quite frankly, a lot more information than we do. This is their country, their territory, uh, and they have capable intelligence collection abilities of their own. Talked about it at length. We know that the U.S. has been providing intelligence to Ukraine. Kirby says that other nations are also giving intel to Ukraine, which then makes decisions on how to use it. This was echoed today by Jen Psaki as well on Air Force One as the president 
flew to Ohio, and we're lucky now to have Senator Mark Warner join us again on Bloomberg Radio. Of course, Democrat from Virginia chairs the Intelligence Committee and also serves on, I think, every other committee in the Senate. Not quite banking, budget, finance, and rules. That's pretty close. Uh, and was instrumental in helping Boeing relocate to the D.C. area. Senator, welcome back. Uh, Joe, I'm looking forward for to It's great to hear your voice. I want to ask you about how this Boeing deal came together. But first, are you concerned that these reports of intelligence sharing will, will be seen by Russia as an escalation? Well, uh, I'm not going to comment, obviously, on any specific report. Uh, but I, I do want to say that, that American intelligence, uh, in com- combination with our allies, particularly the British, has been really forward-leaning in this whole um, Ukraine-Russia conflict. Matter of fact, mm-hmm. I think in a way that uh, deserves our admiration, you know, before the invasion, it was really American and British intelligence that warned our Ukrainian friends, warned the balance of NATO. Many of the Europeans who, you know, candidly a year ago after Mr. Trump, NATO was pretty broken, had to be convinced, had to be assured. I, I remember being at the Munich Security Conference as recently as a um, – 10 days before the invasion, and some of our European allies were still unsure, but the forward-leaning and the willingness to share. And then on top of that, what happened was we saw repeatedly when, and I think this really put Putin off his game, there was going to be a Russian effort to create a coup in in, uh, Ukraine. American intelligence outed that. The British went ahead and even named the, U- the Ukrainian that the Russians were going to put in. Yeah. There was Before the war, there was going to be a, a, a video that would look like it was showing Ukrainian uh, doing bad things. We exposed that as well. So I do think the forward-leaning nature of the... Um, of the American intelligence community has been very good and and has been publicly reported repeatedly. You know, the American intelligence and other intelligence uh, folks from the West are sharing with the Ukrainians who've done candidly a better job than I think any of us expected. It's been incredibly effective. But do do you reject then this idea that this is being framed now as as a, a proxy war between the U.S. and Russia? Listen, on some of the reports that have hit the news in the last, um, you know, two or three days, uh, have a level of specificity that I don't think ought to be um, uh, rumbling around. But the, ben- the general mm-hmm. basis that we ought to be sharing with our, our, our Ukrainian allies, the, the very people who are literally um, sending now close to billions of dollars of military aid to, I think, uh, I, I think it, that intelligence along with that military aid is one of the reasons why the, the Ukrainians are doing so well. And let me be clear that this is not an American-only uh, item. We have you know, uh, lots and lots of country, countries oh, of uh, around Europe and, frankly, even beyond Europe. I mean, our Canadian friends, you know, even our, some of our friends in Asia are sending other assistance to Ukraine. This really is, in my mind, so much bigger than simply Ukraine versus Russia. This is really whether the alliance of democracies around the world will stand up to this kind of authoritarian and therefore not the U.S. versus Russia, I guess is your point. Yeah, I think that is that is not the case. This is an, this is a, an alliance of democracies against yeah. authoritarian regimes. Now, am I concerned that Russia is you know, making a, a even stronger ties with the Communist Party in China? Yes, but I think that kind of authoritarian alliance uh, was in existence before this war and on, on uh, at the end of the day, I think uh, we are also going to have to, we, we are facing, particularly on the economic front, challenges with China that are extraordinarily great. Senator, we've been anticipating the battle for uh, the Donbass to get 
severe uh, for a few weeks now. Is it possible Congress can pass this $33 billion aid request from the president before that battle is decided? Absolutely. Joe, matter of fact, if we don't, it would be horribly irresponsible of us. I was hoping that we could have passed this aid, you know, so that we could have had the passage of it take place before May 9th, which in Soviet slash Russian history is a very important day. It was the celebration of the Soviet Union overcoming the Nazis. Um, and, And let me make two quick points on this. One is, and this $33 billion and you know, a big chunk of its defense, a big chunk of its humanitarian economic. But if you take the defense component and you take also the, the previous 13.3, which I believe was mostly defense, and then you add in the Europeans' uh, commitment on defense, which is not quite you know, 50-50 with us. We're, we're slightly more. Mm-hmm. But you add that together, and you're talking about total Western aid to Ukraine in the 40 to $50 billion category almost since the beginning of the war. And Russia's only got a defense budget of about $66 billion. So, you know, this also sends a signal to Putin and the Russian leadership that, you know, the West is not going to walk away from this commitment. I do think the, the, the Russians, in terms of their military tactics, you know, they have been uh, in, in Ukraine, I, I think, reluctant because their nose has been bloodied so many times when they the battle around Kiev, for example, uh, that, that that battle for the Donbass hasn't been as fully engaged yet. But I think it would be critical if there is a, a single major battle, which I'm not sure there's going to be. It may be a bit of a war of attrition now, but that we get that aid. It's important in terms of assistance to the Ukrainians. It's important to keep you know, making sure that that is a signal to our European friends that they need to continue to produce. But most importantly, it's a signal to Putin that uh, he is not going to uh, be successful in his effort. You mentioned May 9. Before I move on, do we need to worry about Monday? What could that mean for the war? Um, that's a great question. I, I had thought six weeks ago that that May 9th might have been a time where Putin could have taken some, whatever he could have found as some level of success and use that as a way to kind of end the conflict. Yeah. Clearly, he's not been successful. I, uh, you know, so I don't think May 9th is going to have anything significant other than what uh, Putin might might do. There's been speculation, and I'm not sure if there's been speculation that he might make a formal declaration of war against Russia, mm-hmm. against Ukraine, which would allow him to call up all of his reserves. Um, there's been some concern that he might take part of the territory he's captured and you know announce some kind of plebiscite that would be phony, but would try to take those parts and absorb them into uh, into Russia or some of the rump republics. Um, I got to believe he's going to do something, but I'm not sure we have a, a great idea what that may be. We're going to find out together. Uh, Senator Boeing is moving to the Washington area, more specifically northern Virginia uh, from Chicago, a move that you encouraged some time ago. Reports say Virginia is not providing financial incentives. So why is Boeing coming? Well, one, we've had a, a good history in Virginia over the last number of years of being pro-business, of recruiting companies. I, I worked for six years to get Northrop Grumman to move from California uh, to Virginia. Nestle Corporation, you know, in terms of North America, moved their headquarters here. Obviously, Amazon made a huge splash uh, a year plus ago when they announced. Um, you know, this is not going to be. A, a huge number of jobs per se, although they'll be obviously high paying jobs, but I think it's it's significant in that 
we've had a pretty darn good track record of offering good quality of life, good schools, you know, a pro-business environment. One of the things that didn't get as much attention that I'm as excited about as the, uh, the, the international headquarters of Boeing, which is the fact that Boeing is also going to, to um, launch a research and development center in Northern Virginia. And with all the things taking place in aviation and drones and all the various touch points that aerospace touches across a whole variety of fields, that R&D investment in Northern Virginia may, 10 years from now, be a much more significant uh, addition to this, the region's economy and to Virginia's economy than actually even the headquarters. Does this speak as well to Boeing's increased exposure to defense? More than half its sales last year came from military contracts. You know, uh, a number of folks have said, does this, do they want to be closer to the regulators, DOD, to Capitol Hill? Um, you know, I- I'm not sure. The truth is, you know, if a company moves closer here, oftentimes they want to try to raise their profile. Yeah. Um, frankly, you know, Boeing is a well, well-known entity. They don't need to raise their profile. Matter of fact, they've got a, I think they've still got some corrective work to do in terms of some of the failures and, uh, they had. Uh, and I do think the, the new management team at Boeing is really taking that head on. Um, and I'm not sure it, 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 at times, I, as a former governor, um, when I was pitching Virginia, you know, being close to those of us at the Capitol. I'm not sure whether that's a good news item or a bad news item, but um, I think end of the day, at least in my conversations with the Boeing management, it was about quality of life. It was about the, you know, the management team. This is a good area. It was also about attracting a diverse set of talent. One of the things that Boeing has said, both in the management level and I think on the technology level, you know, engineering and elsewhere, they want to make sure they're moving towards a more diverse workforce. And the greater Washington business community has really worked very closely with, uh, you know, a number of our universities from Howard to George Mason in, in uh, Northern Virginia, which is very diverse. Virginia Tech, where um, the CEO of, of Boeing has served on a, has served with me actually on a innovation board as Virginia Tech tries to grow its presence in Northern Virginia. I'm sure you know just this week the families of the victims of the two 737 MAX crashes asked a judge in Texas to overturn Boeing's settlement with the government. Uh, they say they, they were shortchanged because it was handled as a fraud case, not a criminal case. Do you think that settlement was fair? You know, Joe, I don't... You know, I've I've read as a as I think most of us have followed this um, story. Obviously, it was a you know huge tragedies, uh, and this was more than one plane that went down. But I candidly don't know enough of the specifics of this settlement to make that kind of judgment. Senator, it's great to have you with us on Bloomberg Sound On as we wait to find out what unfolds on Monday. Your voice on all of this and your view from the Intelligence Committee is very important to us at Bloomberg. Senator Mark Warner, Democrat from Virginia. Thank you, sir. Chair of Senate Intelligence, Finance, Banking and Rules member. It is quite a business card. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. 
Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. After today's jobs data, we bring in Jared Bernstein of the White House Council of Economic Advisors for his take on all of this. Jared, welcome back to Bloomberg. Well, thanks so much for inviting me back. It's always a pleasure to share ideas here, and we've we've got a big jobs report on our hands that I'd like to start with. The headline is stronger than expected. It's a big number. The president says this all adds up to 8.3 million jobs since he took office. So, Jared, why do people seem so downbeat right now? Does, does everything come back to inflation at this time? Well, look, there's definitely elevated inflation in the system, and the president talks about what a challenge that is for household budgets every time he speaks. So no one's giving that short shrift at all. But we also have to be extremely mindful of the backdrop, the support, the strength of the American household and business sector as well. Uh, Certainly, the jobs report today is in focus. But if we look at household balance sheets, if we look at debt service, if we look at people's net worth, uh, if we look at business starts, I can keep going. I I think the the broader point is that while uh, inflation is very much upon the land and we're doing everything we can to ameliorate that burden on household budgets, it's not the only factor in play in today's economy. Much has been said about the participation rate in the job market. As, as I just want to stick on this jobs report for one minute here. With two job openings, as you well know, Jared, for every mm-hmm. American that does not have one. Bloomberg spoke earlier today with Labor Secretary Marty Walsh. Here's what he had to say about that. The question is, if we have 12 million jobs opening, 6 million people roughly looking for work, why shouldn't they be able to find a job? And I think we have to do a little diver, look into that number regionally to see exactly what, what the reason is. I mean, are people underskilled? Do we need to scale them up? Are are they really looking for work? How do we do? How do we encourage them to get to work? What's your thought on that, Jared? Is there a simple answer or is it more complex than that? Well, I think uh, Secretary Walsh uh, has long been an advocate of making sure that workers get all the supports they need to get the best job they can. And in fact, in those same data that show the increased vacancies, you do see elevated quit rates. Now, sometimes people have quit rates and think, wow, that must be a bad thing for working people. In fact, what we know is that those people are upgrading their jobs. They're getting better jobs. Hmm. And that's one of the things that happen when you have uh, so many vacancies. So I think part of what's going on here is we just have a very strong consumer demand, very strong business investment climate. We saw that even, by the way, in the first quarter GDP. Now, that had a negative handle having to do with imports and inventories. Yes, right. But if you got under the hood and looked at the consumer spending and the investment, still very strong, and that's creating strong labor demand, as we saw in today's report. So the question then becomes, if we extend this a little bit, Jared, is how long can that phenomenon last? Now that the Fed has begun tightening, what's your view on the second half of this year? Do you expect to see demand destruction and, and then would that be followed by layoffs as corporations begin to adjust to this new interest rate environment? Well, certainly one of the things that we're trying to do here at the White House is help to ease some of the supply constraints so that we maintain strong demand, but bring up supply in the sense of, for example, our work at the ports mm-hmm. with supply chains, implementing the infrastructure law, 
trying to go further and get Congress to pass the Bipartisan Innovation Act with a deep investment in semiconductors. That's yes, more right. of a medium-term play. So if we can increase the economy supply side from where we are, uh, we think that we can uh, help maintain uh, some of the growth that we're seeing while easing inflationary pressures. Yep. So if I can get philosophical with you for a minute, and I know you love <laughs> to do that, I want to ask you about the causes of inflation. This is the big conversation right now in Washington, and I guess nationally. Republicans say it's because the administration spent too much on stimulus coming out of COVID, and they've even said that about the prior administration. But the White House, the Biden White House, has consistently pointed to the shift in demand for goods during the pandemic, from services to goods, and supply chain problems that came from the pandemic, a global phenomenon, not something we likely could have uh, managed on our own here. Do you believe, though, that the stimulus spending made it worse? In other words, is everyone right? You know, interestingly, I think we've already implicitly answered this question in our conversation so far. We've talked about two things, very strong demand, consumer sector, household sector, uh, corporate sector, uh, very strong labor market. Of course, you saw today's report Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, still some uh, issues on the supply side, still constrained supply, whether it's supply chains, labor supply coming back, but not not where we'd like to, like it to be. And I think the inflation is best understood as strong demand hits constrained supply equals elevated prices. Now, look, um, our But that means it would have happened without the stimulus spending. Is, is that your view? So I think one, one easy answer to that is to look at Europe, okay? Yeah. Now, they did some fiscal policy, but they didn't do the American Rescue Plan. Right, right. So they're looking at uh, inflation rates of 7.5% with the March read in the EU. Uh, that's an historic high for them. Uh, if you look at Canada, if you look at France, Italy, it just, just across countries, you're going to see elevated inflation. Mm-hmm. And, and look, we didn't all do the same fiscal policy, but we all had the same pandemic. Yes. So that gives you a sense of one of the core factors there. And if demand and supply chains then are the real drivers of inflation, do you worry about hiking rates in this environment, you know, the sort of sledgehammer approach, or is that the only way to dampen demand for goods? I would imagine everyone who's paying attention to all the dynamics we're talking about, fiscal policy, monetary policy, the underlying macroeconomic conditions as we've described them, recognizes that the uh, Fed uh, needed to pivot, and they've done so. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly, the president of the United States has made that same comment. Uh, He has supported the Fed's action. Of course, he's uh, nominated and re-nominated a great slate of of, uh, nominees for Congress uh, to confirm as quickly as possible. Uh, and, uh, And so I don't think there's any question that in this environment, the Fed is the first and foremost Uh, institution uh, fighting against this elevated inflation, and they're going at it. They certainly are. I guess I just, you know, I'm I'm trying to get to this in a slightly different way. If if supply chain is the problem, then fixing the supply chain is the solution, right? As opposed to just across the board hiking rates and causing the incredible level of fear that we're seeing now on Wall Street. Well, I think as I've, I've tried to articulate that we have very strong demand and we also have constrained supply. Now, the Fed is going to come at this using their tools, uh, which more work on the demand side. We're going to come at this using our tools, and our tools happen to be our work at the ports, uh, our work trying to increase uh, trucking, bringing down costs like drug and health care costs. So you're already doing it, is your point. Yeah, but but there's much more for us to do. So, for example, affordable housing. This is actually a key 
um, Biden uh, administration uh, administration agenda, yeah. uh, we recognize the constraints in the housing market and the shelters uh, about a third of the uh, of, of the CPI. So this is in our budget. So this is a legislative initiative, but we also have things we can do administratively on that front to help uh, I- increase the supply of affordable housing, and we're doing them. Hey, one other thing in this, uh, I know you, you and I have talked about this a lot before. Yeah. Earlier this week, the president talked about uh, the fact that the deficit was expected to come down right. $1.5 trillion this year. Now, if you just uh, do the simple macroeconomics and you write out GDP, consumption plus investment, et cetera, mm-hmm. at the end of that equation, you get government spending, that kind of a uh, fiscal contraction uh, is uh, what the economists call negative fiscal impulse. That, too, should serve to help uh, dampen some inflationary pressures. So I think we can look at deficit reduction in that regard as well. One of the big concerns lately has been a recession. Instead of asking you today about the R word and what do you think mm-hmm. the odds are, I want to ask you about the S word. As I read on the Bloomberg, stagflation threat sends credit risk gauges soaring globally. Jared, how likely is it that we will see a period of stagflation? Well, look, I'm old enough to remember the misery index, which is uh, the unemployment rate plus inflation. Now, obviously, the second factor in that calculation is elevated, but the first is anything but. And so we have a 3.6% unemployment rate. We have a pace of job gains that, by some metrics, is historically uh, unmatched. Uh, Jared, I wish we had more time, as always, uh, and I know you'll come back, I hope you will soon, of the White House Council of Economic Advisors here on Sound On, the fastest hour in politics. Coming up, we're joined by Bloomberg Opinion columnist Juliana Goldman, who says Democrats need to organize to win the fight for Roe. This is Bloomberg. Senator Schumer says it's coming next week, the legislation to codify Roe v. Wade as law of the land. He announced his plan from the floor of the Senate this week. This is about to change. Next week, the U.S. Senate is going to vote on legislation to codify a woman's right to seek an abortion into federal law. I intend to file cloture on this vital legislation Monday, which would set up a vote for Wednesday. Republicans will have two choices. They can own the destruction of women's rights, or they can reverse course and work to prevent the damage. To be more precise, that was from the uh, the briefing that followed upstairs. Now, this, of course, after the big leak of the draft opinion, showing the Supreme Court poised to invalidate Roe v. Wade, the conventional wisdom has been that this is going to help Democrats in the midterms by mobilizing voters, right? Big turnout, especially suburban women. But it's not likely that simple. And Bloomberg Opinion columnist Juliana Goldman gets to this in her latest column. She joins us now to talk about it. Juliana, thank you for being here. I've been looking forward to our conversation. You say Democrats need to take a page from Stacey Abrams' playbook. Which page do they need? (laughs) Uh, all of them, <laughs> uh, all, all of the them. pages, all the pages. Uh, Joe, thanks for having me on. I, I really appreciate the time. Um, no, but look, we see uh, reproductive rights groups are calling for May 14th as this big day of action. We're going to mm-hmm. see um, uh, protests and rallies on the scale of the the Women's March back in 2021, um, and that is, you know, that is all fine and good, and the energy and anger and the passion needs to be harnessed. Um, But there's a lifetime between now and November. 
And, um, you know, this isn't just about mobilizing, but it's going to be about organizing. And historically, Republicans and the pro-life movement have done a better job on the organizing front, uh, case in point, electing lawmakers who are going to appoint conservative justices, the Supreme Court, Mm -hmm. uh, to overturn Roe versus Wade. So explain what you mean, or if you can articulate the difference between mobilizing and organizing, because I think a lot of people consider them the same thing. Yeah, you, you, in, in politics and, and in talking about elections, you use them interchangeably, right? Yeah. But mobilizing is, you know, getting people out, getting them on the streets, getting them um, to the polls. Uh, but organizing is really about getting in deep on the ground, getting the people who aren't likely to vote or who haven't voted before, um, you know, not just focusing, as you said, on the suburban voters, but going into rural areas, um, going into, um, you know, to less educated, less affluent, um, more underserved communities, and explaining to the people, and in this case, you know, I, I, I quote, I show in the piece um, that, you know, half, half Americans don't know what the, uh, the laws are in their states when it comes to um, access to to abortion and reproductive rights, which is stunning and for such a controversial issue. It is, and also, um, you know, knowing and understanding that the people who are going to be impacted most severely from Roe versus you know from Roe being overturned are the more hard to reach um, voters or mm-hmm. people who have not voted before, and they're the ones who really need to be organized. Um, and tapped into. Well, Juliana, uh, you, know, you covered when... Washington for a long time. You understand Capitol Hill and the politics behind this. If this polls, a majority of Americans do not want Roe v. Wade to be overturned, then how come this is such a heavy lift for Chuck Schumer? He does not have the votes to pass this next week. Right, because in, in the soundbite that you uh, you you uh, posted just now, you know, he's talking to Republicans, but it's not just yeah. Republicans, it's Joe Manchin right. as well. Um, and, you know, the author of this report that I, I based the piece off of, uh, Theta Scotchpole, who's a Harvard social scientist, um, uh, she looked at the last 15, she looked at about 15 years of uh, organizing around social justice campaigns, uh, contrasting the efforts in North Carolina um, with the Reverend William Barber versus Georgia, uh, which you you mentioned in, in the Stacey Abrams playbook, yes, right. and looked at why it was so much more successful um, in Georgia. Um, you know, and she she points out that that yes, we we see the educated Democrats, the educated activists that are going to be getting up and rallying um, again, but they're not the ones that need to um, they're not the ones that need to uh, be be activated, you know, they're going to be out there yelling at Joe Manchin. Yeah. She said they're going to be out there yelling at Joe Manchin to get rid of the filibuster, um, but he's not going <laughs> to do that. Um, and so, you know, what Democrats need to do is they need to get more seats. And already this was looking like a bloodbath um, heading into November for Democrats. Sure. So what um, do they need to go out and get cell phone numbers is what you're saying, right? They need to go and get cell phone numbers. I mean, one of the points that she makes in the in in her report, um, you know, is is that Republicans have been able to go into churches, to gun clubs, um, you know, taken over the place of unions, um, mm-hmm. you know, which Democrats have 
you know, had historically, um, you know, been been a source of strength for them. Um, you know, she looks at Stacey Abrams and how she went to funeral homes for organizing. Um, and so, it, you know, it's, like you said, it's it's cell phones, it's funeral homes. It's <laughs> That's just, a great it's, thought. Yeah, um, no, it's, it's the on the ground yeah. organizing. Let me right? ask like you in our remaining moment here, and I know it's not the thrust of your column, but how about Republicans organizing around this? Republicans are very effective at that, right, With in terms of raising money and mm-hmm. organizing, you know, actionable uh, 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 groups in terms of voting and, and voting behavior that we could see in November? Or is this really a Democratic story about mobilizing that the Republicans have already got the energy they need? No, I don't. I don't know. I think that, you know, I, I, I hate to say this, but I think it remains to be seen. Look, yeah. like I go back to saying there is a lifetime. There's going to be time between now and when the final opinion is handed down. And you can That's see right. that Republicans are really, you know, they're, they're kind of they're steering clear and they're treading lightly on this. I think they need to see what the final opinion is. And Democrats do. Juliana well. Goldman, come back and see us again on Bloomberg. Johan Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. As we round out our Friday together, we assemble our reporters' roundtable. It's been a while since we've done this. If you listen to Sound On, you already know Bloomberg government's Emily Wilkins and Jack Fitzpatrick. No strangers to our microphones. And today we want to focus on a fairly busy agenda on Capitol Hill before the House returns to town. Emily, I'll start with you. It's great to see you in studio today. Chuck Schumer says he's moving a bill to codify abortion rights next week. Uh, He does not appear to have the votes. Is this all about shaming Republicans into publicly voting no? I mean, you can use the word shaming if you would like to use that word. I think what Chuck Chuck Schumer, Schumer, Chuck Schumer would probably use the word shaming Mm -hmm. in in trying to stick with with the non-biased track here. I'll just say it's getting them on the record, right? If they get this vote, then groups can run ads saying that Senator such and such voted against this bill to protect the right to abortion. Mm -hmm. And it's something, you know, that, that Democrats do see as critical to do. But but no, I mean, this is going to need 60 votes to move forward. Democrats don't have 60 votes. In fact, the last time that they tried to move forward legislation on Roe, they didn't even have enough support within Democrats to get to 50. You had Senator mm. Joe Manchin vote against. So he will be an interesting one to watch this time. Yeah. Um, but but yes, I mean, this is really just more of a messaging thing than, than any substantial legislation. Jack, uh, Senator Schumer wants to shame some Republicans, but many pro-life Republicans will be proud to stand up and vote against this legislation. Does that go for most of the party in the Senate? 
Yeah, most of the Republicans, I think, uh, I'm sure Democrats would say they're shaming Republicans, uh, but I think this is an issue that really motivates both sides, both parties. The Democrats are hoping that this uh, ruling and the fact that it's come out now early uh, sort of motivates their own democratic base, but it's not really necessarily a persuasive issue where you're going to find Republicans to win over. And I think that's illustrated by the fact uh, that the two potentially persuadable Republicans in the Senate, Senators Collins and Murkowski, mm -hmm. they may uh, be able to get something a little more uh, moderate than this bill that the Democrats are, are putting forward that would uh, take a step toward codifying Roe. But that's not the plan because they know they're not going to get 60 votes. So they might as well give the Democrats their uh, sort of what the base wants to see, allow the Republicans to vote no. And both parties end up saying, hey, we, we got what we wanted yeah. out of this politically. Interesting. Chuck Schumer, Emily, yesterday was saying, you know, this we're not just doing this as a one off. We're going to keep coming back again and again and again. How many versions, how many attempts could we see? I mean, it'll be interesting to see if there is some sort of somewhat bipartisan legislation that comes from this, um, although even then it's a huge question mark. I mean, the idea that you get 10 Republican senators is, is a Unlikely. lot here. And I think it's also worth noting, you know, I was talking with a couple of strategists, uh, particularly down in Texas, because they've got an interesting primary coming up there with one of really the only uh, anti-abortion Democrat left in the House, Henry Cuellar. Oh. He will be facing the progressive Jessica Cisneros later this month. But I was asking, no, Cisneros has really tried to make a queer stance on abortion an issue. And I asked them, uh, strategists, if it's going to work. And they really pointed out that, you know, for Democrats, they're not immune to inflation. They still care about things like high prices, the yes, economy, right. the kitchen table issues. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, abortion is something that really energizes and motivates the base, but it's certainly not the only issue at play here in these midterms. Republicans do not seem to be concerned here uh, with polling, Jack, a majority of Americans do not want to see Roe v. Wade overturned, but that doesn't cause a problem in a primary season, does it? Right. In a Republican primary, that may not be an issue. Uh, also, if you look at the details of polling, um, probably the most uh, motivated group by this on the Democratic side would be college-educated women. Uh, and keep in mind, you know, Joe Biden outperformed Hillary Clinton among that group. I'm not sure how much Democrats have to gain by the most motivated voters who you'd be trying to turn out who otherwise might turn out in, it might not turn out in a midterm. Uh, so it, it, it doesn't pull that well in the aggregate for Republicans. But in Republican primaries, you're probably safe as an anti-abortion Republican. Uh, and Democrats don't have very easy math on their side to yeah. say, you know, who exactly is going to show up who wasn't going to. It's really smart analysis there. Uh, President Biden this afternoon is once again pushing the Bipartisan Innovation Act, which has been crawling through Congress. We've talked about this a lot. Emily, can the House and Senate get together on this or is it actually in danger of never passing? I think at this point, given some of the votes that we saw in the Senate, there's definitely the momentum and the will mm -hmm. to pass something. I mean, when you look uh, and, and certainly the you can frame this legislation in several different ways. But when you look at the desire for the U.S. to remain competitive against China, that is absolutely something that is bipartisan. Yeah. And so I think there is a question that we did see um, some sort of early meetings on the House side. I don't think everyone's gotten together fully on this one yet. Um, but there is the willingness to do something. There is time left 
to do something. And I think it's just a question of, you know, when you actually get the conferences in the room and then mm. after that, what the sticking points are, which I think is something we're really going to see shape up in the next coming weeks. Is it possible to kind of frame these sticking points, Jack? People have been talking on both sides of the aisle about passing the CHIP Act, which is inside this legislation. For the better part of a year, the Commerce Secretary was out again this morning, the president out again. What's holding it up? Yeah, it's been very interesting because it's not necessarily an issue that is holding it up. It's that there's been a back and forth in which both the Senate and House kind of try to use their prerogative to do their own bill. And that's why we're in a conference now. There was never a a, a, a time when they got together and said, let's do one bipartisan bill. And it's an issue that's broad enough that you can just keep adding things. Uh, for example, our, our colleague Maria Curie just uh, reported recently, even after all of this, there's now talk uh, by Senators Ron Wyden and Mike Crapo and some others saying, what if instead of just spending this money on semiconductor in investments, mm -hmm. there could be a semi semiconductor investment tax credit? And then you open the door to a whole conversation about tax credits. There's some pushback on exactly, you know, it, so it's the conversation has just never ended and it's gone on and on and on. There's a lot of bipartisan support for what's in this, but eventually they have to say, all right, we're doing one last bill that's good for the House and <laughs> yeah. Senate and we're going to end these conversations. Well, that would be quite a moment. Uh, one thing that does appear to have bipartisan support is anything uh, that helps Ukraine in its war against Russia. And uh, it gets a little more complicated, but largely bipartisan support uh, for additional sanctions. Jack, are we going to get another round from Capitol Hill itself, or is this something that uh, the administration is going to own? You know, on sanctions, the administration is taking the lead, and there's a, a conversation coming up of, uh, among a group of seven leaders. There's there's sort of an ongoing uh, conversation about if there are more sanctions that they can add or if there are any loopholes they can get around to better enforce sanctions. Uh, but in Congress, the conversation really is about providing that money, that $33 billion requested by Biden. That's something that has a lot of bipartisan support. The one challenge is they still have a COVID relief bill yeah. that Democrats want to attach to that. If you get into the COVID conversation, you have to get into the Title 42 immigration pandemic policy issue. Uh, so it's a question of whether the Ukraine supplemental spending bill, which is very popular, becomes the Christmas tree that's weighted yes, down right. with a number of ornaments. But that issue itself has a lot of support. Is there any chance, Emily, this comes through as a clean bill or, or something to Jack's point, particularly COVID funding will have to be attached to it. Uh, that is sort of the big question right now. And and you certainly have Democrats who are out there saying that they want to have both of them attached, that they think that it's important. But I think Democrats understand that it's going to it's it's sort of a calculus of how it looks, right? Mm -hmm. Who is going to shoulder the blame if Democrats attach COVID funding to Ukraine? Are Democrats going to be the ones left holding the bag for not trying to pass a clean bill? Or could they sort of blame Republicans for being the ones not providing the votes? Yeah, I right. mean, this is, I think, kind of the big question right now. Would Republicans but really vote against it, though, with COVID funding attached? Uh, Republicans would try to attach that Title 42 immigration funding Fine. to it. And then once that happens, Democrats, you're going to have an issue. So we put all the forward. ornaments on the tree. Exactly. Is that, is that how this likely ends? I, I mean, it's either going to be Democrats are going to realize that they want to pass something quickly, they need to pass a clean bill, or it's going to be, yes, yeah, some sort of battle where it's just yeah. thing after thing after thing is is added, and then this whole process stalls. Do you have a gut check on that, Jack? Because you know at some point President Zelensky is going to say, hey, where's the $33 billion? And that's going to be a big deal. 
Yeah, the administration, the Biden administration is running out of their current drawdown authority. They were down to the hundreds of millions and they're requesting tens of billions. Uh, so the pressure is on now. And there's still this push to get uh, a vote by next week yeah. on this. Uh, so the, the, the pressure is already there. Uh, we know that the Republicans, if the COVID money was attached, the Republicans would uh, call for an amendment on Title 42. If that fails, they would have their excuse for voting against the whole thing. Wow. And they could also offer an amendment to do a standalone Ukrainian supplemental. So, mm -hmm. it, you know, it, it could be challenging for Democrats if they insist on attaching the COVID money. Well, next week ought to be another riot in Washington. As we hear from Jack and Emily, it's really great to spend time with both of you. Good to see you. Bloomberg government's Emily Wilkins and Jack Fitzpatrick. Thanks to both of you and have a great weekend. We'll see you back here Monday. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Join global business leaders and investors at the Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit, returning to Singapore on July 31st. Take part in solutions-driven discussions on how to drive business value and unlock opportunity while remaining nimble in times of change and greater ESG accountability. Learn more at BloombergLive.com slash SustainableBizSingapore. That's BloombergLive.com slash SustainableBizSingapore.